I'm Timothy Putnam, and I'll be your host for the next hour. Each week we gather right here to explore the foundations of our faith, to look at the implications of our faith in our daily lives so that together you and I can prepare to live outside the walls. It's hard to know where to begin today. Today's show is going to be a little disjointed because for the first time in four years, we recorded several weeks in a row as we went down, had the opportunity at the end of last month to go to the uh, 50th anniversary Humana Vitae conference in Ontario, California, put on by the California Association of Natural Family Planning. Uh, we had fantastic speakers there. It was a wonderful conference. And uh, and that conference is going to be made available. All the speakers all the keynotes, I think even the workshops are going to be made available free of charge by video on their website, CelebrateHV50.com. And so while I was there, I took the opportunity to get as many of those conversations recorded for us to share here uh, as possible. And so I got four of them. We, uh, we've had three weeks so far where we've talked with Dr. Janet Smith, foremost expert in Humana Vitae, a fantastic moral theologian. Uh, we've talked with Father Paul Check. Uh, who was the former director of Courage International, uh, CourageRC.org. Last week, we got to talk with um, Archbishop Cordelione out of the Archdiocese of San Francisco. And today, uh, we're going to go ahead and we're going to air our interview and conversation with Father Luke Dysinger, who is a Benedictine monk, a medical doctor, and uh, a seminary professor. And we're going to talk with him again about Humana Vitae. That's what he was there at the conference talking about, specifically how Amoris Laetitia, uh, this apostolic exhortation from Pope Francis, can be used in defense of life and natural family planning. It was a fantastic talk that he gave. It's a, a fascinating conversation that we had, uh, talking about everything from what drew him to monastic life to his observations on this, this document on Amoris Laetitia. And so I had all kinds of plans about what we were going to do in this segment and the, our reading from Scripture and Church History at the end, uh, kind of as a capstone on our conversations about Humana Vitae. But all of that has to be laid aside. We're going to still have our conversation, but we're going to sandwich it in between some conversations about what's going on in the church right now. To start off, I feel very ill-equipped to have this conversation. Um, I'm, I'm rendered speechless. I'm brought to tears over, uh, over what I've read and what I've heard. And I don't feel like I have my mind around it yet well enough to really talk about this, but I, I feel that uh, I can't wait um, another week and let silence go by without bringing this up. While I was at the conference uh, that today's conversation comes from, uh, the the news broke that former Cardinal McCarrick had resigned his position in the College of Cardinals, and that was a very important thing that needed to happen, but it's unprecedented, and I don't know that anyone expected it to happen. Uh, and so there was uh, a sense there at the time that that was the big thing. I, I don't think any one of us could have anticipated what was coming. But this past week, the uh, the grand jury in the state of Pennsylvania released their report of 70 years worth of abuse in multiple dioceses within the states of minors 
by clerics. And there's a, quite a bit in, in the report that is absolutely horrifying. The stories that are told uh, of the kind of abuse that these victims endured is too much for the soul to bear. And so, as if you have read it, as you have felt that weight and that pain and your soul begins to cry out, take that in prayer for the victim. Pray for those who are still living, um, that they would find consolation, that they would find uh, healing, and that, that Christ would meet them and minister to them where they are in a way that they can receive him. For those who have passed on, pray for the repose of their soul. Resist the urge to jump straight to analysis. I've seen quite a bit of it so far. Some people say that all of this is because uh, the church allowed uh, homosexuals to become priests. Though, as we talked about with Father Paul Check a couple of weeks ago, the inclination is not the same thing as the action. I've seen some that have said that this is all because Humana Vitae was not accepted, even though many of these stories predate Humana Vitae by uh, a couple of decades. We want to run to analysis because we want this fixed, and we want it fixed now. But this is not a problem that was created quickly, and it's not a problem that's going to be solved quickly. Honestly, there are many factors that led up to this. Chief among them is that the devil has come to steal, kill, and destroy, and we have let him do that through us. For each of us, what we are tempted to is different, but for each of us, it's just as easy to let sin control us and to hurt others with that sin, because all sin brings devastation in one way or another, and there but for the grace of God go each of us. So rather than pointing fingers, let's turn our hearts to pray for the victims. This week in um, in Mass and the Prayers of the Faithful, I'm borrowing these intentions from, uh, from Deacon Stephen Gradanus out of New Jersey. For justice and healing for all who have endured any form of sexual violence, harassment, or exploitation, that those who are silent will not fear to speak, those who speak will be heard, the guilty held accountable, and the innocent protected, we pray to the Lord. Lord, hear our prayer that all who belong to Christ will be steadfast and persevere in following him, never succumbing to discouragement, weariness, or bitterness. Let us pray to the Lord. Lord, hear our prayer. We're going to return to this topic at the end of today's show. In the meantime, we have a conversation with Father Luke Dysinger that we had at the Celebrate HV50 conference out in uh, Ontario, California. Soon you'll be able to find his talk and all the others at CelebrateHV50.com. We're going to be talking with Father Luke Dysinger about Amoris Letizia and how it supports life in NFP. Keep praying for the church. Pray for the victims. We'll be right back right after this. You're listening to Outside the Walls with Timothy Putnam. Welcome back to Outside the Walls, where we explore the foundations and implications of our faith on daily life. I'm your host, Timothy Putnam. 
We're continuing to bring you conversations that we had back at the Humanavite conference in uh, in Ontario, California, back at the end of last month. Today, uh, we're talking with Father Luke Dysinger. He is a, a Benedictine and a medical doctor. And Father, thank you for joining us today. Thank you for having me. I'm very interested in uh, in these two calls because generally, when you think both of these are callings, right, and they're both callings to help. Uh, fellow man and to uh, to help the broader community but oftentimes and you used the term earlier oftentimes we tend to think of medical doctors like house md on television this mm. this kind of a condescension of i know better than you uh playing god kind of thing uh and we think of a benedictine monk as demure and quiet and reserved and hidden from the world how did these two calls come about that are seemingly so far apart, and how do they coalesce in your life? I can certainly speak from my own experience and from my own past, but just to dispel a myth, there are in fact a fair number of Benedictine monks who are also medical doctors. Mm -hmm. We have a couple of them in my own particular Benedictine congregation, the branch of the Benedictine order to which my monastery happens to belong, uh, the abbot of... Uh, our monastery in Ireland, in Glenstall, is a physician, and I know a number of others, both in this country and in Europe as well. Mm -hmm. In general, these are, and I am, uh, these were individuals who practiced medicine before joining the monastery, who for one reason or another decided that Benedictine life was for them after having uh, served as physicians in various capacities and for variable periods of time. In my own case, I first discovered Benedictine monasticism when I was an undergraduate. I had a retreat at St. John's Abbey in Collegeville, which at the time was the mm, perhaps largest or second largest Benedictine Abbey in the world, mm -hmm. with something like 300 monks. And although I didn't know it at the time, they even had a fair number of monks involved in science. They run a university, a prep school, a um, number of parishes, quite a number of apostolates. And I didn't realize it, but at the time there was also a monk up above the Abbey Church doing scanning electron micrographs of glomeruli, of uh, kidney function, and uh, all sorts of interesting things. But uh, when I first visited, I was very much attracted by the life of prayer, the commitment, the obvious commitment of the men that I saw to the life that they had chosen. And I remember while being on a little conference retreat, a little discussion with one of the monks, someone asked him the usual question, well, what is it you do? <laughs> and he stopped for a moment and said, well, I could tell you about the um, liturgical press. I could tell you about the parishes. I could tell you about the university. But if I did that, he said, I'd be avoiding your question. What we do is we pray. And if we didn't do any of those other things, there would still be a very good reason for us to exist. Mm -hmm. And my immediate reaction was, wow, that's bizarre and fascinating. And so it was over the next 10 years or so that I came to grips with what that meant for me. I eventually joined a monastery about one-tenth the size, uh, about 30 monks, uh, and uh, became a member of the community at St. Um, Andrew's Abbey in Valermo which was about 30 miles from the residency program where I finished my training in family practice. I had been at USC as an undergraduate and a medical student, and then UCLA and Cedars for internship, and the last part of my residency was out at the Antelope Valley Hospital Medical Center, where I'm still a member of the medical staff and where I've been a part of their bioethics efforts now for a couple of decades. Mm -hmm. So um, 
the process of getting to know the place, of finding something fascinating, and then eventually there's no other way of saying it, of falling in love. Falling in love with a way of life, and not just a way of life, but an experience of praying, and coming to the conviction that there is something about that way of life that would be for you something that nothing else could be. I imagine something like what happens when a person falls in love and chooses to marry, that you discover someone uh, whom you choose to give your life to and with whom you can see yourself moving closer to God. And in the same way, monastic life is that context, that community, where you have reason to believe that by fidelity to to this place and these people, uh, you will be brought nearer to the Lord. And that has been my experience over the last, oh, let's see, about... um, 36 years or so. Yeah. Now, we often hear that Benedictines, they, they, they use the term work and pray, but in, mm. in the Latin, of course, it's reversed. It's ora et labora, that we, that we pray first. And, and that answer that the, the monk gave at the time is we, all these other things we do avoid the question. We, we pray. And, of course, you're praying for the church and you're praying for, uh, for, for God's kingdom to come. And for living out that kingdom right. to the degree is, that's possible now. The prayer of the monastic community is a kind of ongoing consecration of whatever activity the individual may be involved in. A Benedictine monasticism has been around for 1,500 years, and so almost everything imaginable has been an undertaken by monastic communities, monastic congregations, individual monks. And to this day, Benedictines tend to have a variety of apostolic activities in some monasteries and congregations. Some are primarily or exclusively contemplative, that is to say, they tend to not undertake work outside the abbey, primarily devoting themselves to perhaps liturgical prayer, which is at the very, very much at the core of the Benedictine life. Others might may be involved in retreat ministries, as my own monastery is, and some have monks who work outside the monastery, either full-time or part-time, sometime in parishes, sometimes in other work. Two of us at my monastery are involved in teaching full-time at the seminary. Mm-hmm. And, of course, you, you do teach at the seminary as well. We're talking with Father Luke Dysinger. And let's go ahead and turn our attention to the fact that we're here together at this conference mm-hmm. celebrating the 50th anniversary, marking this occasion uh, of the release of Humana Vitae. And you have a very unique perspective on this because you are a, a religious and you are a medical doctor. You see two different sides of this. Talk to us a little bit about the importance of this document uh, as, as you've experienced it. I like to look at Humanae Vitae as part of an ongoing continuity of our tradition. The earliest uh, encyclicals and statements in recent times on the subject of human sexuality, one can trace them back into the 19th century and then find a kind of an ongoing discussion, often uh, in reaction to what's happening in society. Mm -hmm. For example, Pius XI uh, wrote particularly about the question of the misuse of what would amount to uh, contraception and control of reproduction for eugenic purposes, because the phenomenon of eugenics had been gaining a great deal of momentum in the late 19th and early 20th centuries. But the real discussion of human sexuality as a tremendous good as uh, being in the context of human marriage, this is something that's really flowered, especially in the 20th century, flowering in both Humanae Vitae and then especially in the theology of the body of Pope St. John Paul II. Humanae Vitae represents, many people look at it as as a definitive statement of the church on the subject of contraception, and certainly that is at the core of its 
um, of its, if you will, um, moral implications. But it's ever so much more than that. It's an attempt to reflect on the nature of the relationship between a man and a woman in marriage, the unity of the, uh, the act of intimacy, and indeed of all kinds of intimate acts, being both procreative and unitive, providing for mutual support and a deepening experience of love and that incredible participation in new life, which the uh, procreative aspect of, of human sexuality uh, is. And even in Pope Paul VI's day, uh, he saw what had been seen before, that there was an ongoing attempt to experience intimacy and sexuality in a divided way, in which you either divided the procreative from the unitive or sought to live out one or the other aspects uh, exclusively. And that certainly has happened. The document was very prophetic in its anticipation of many of the abuses of or directions in which human sexuality would be taken in ways that are not fully human, fully uh, fully balanced. Uh, again, I like to see it historically as a part of an ongoing tradition, and so one can see uh, affirmation of it and uh, development of the, uh, the traditions expressed both in the pontificates of Pope St. John Paul II and then Benedict XVI and in the time of Pope Francis as well. Mm -hmm. And that's something that we'll break into a little bit more in depth as we get uh, into the next segment. But before we get there, uh, you, you we're talking about this integration of of our human sexuality and, and our personhood, and and this uh, we we can view humanity on a personalist level, on an individual level of how it affects me. But there's also this sociological level that's quite a bit, uh, maybe a thousand foot view of how, and and I think Pope Paul the dove into this a little bit about not how this is going to affect you, but how this is going to affect. Uh, you through the fact that it's affecting the whole society. I think it's both sociological and, if I may, it's also theological mm -hmm. and in many ways uh, deeply spiritual and even metaphysical. This interconnectedness between what we do, it's really speaking to the foundational question of what does it mean to love? What does it mean to live in human relationship? When we think about it, the only things that are going to go on to heaven are our relationship with God and our relationships with one another. Those are eternal realities. And to live them out as fully and completely and in as human a fashion as possible is absolutely essential. Pope St. John Paul II described it as the language of the body. We are expressing with ourselves a very deep truth, and we don't want to lie to others or to ourselves. So to act with integrity, to act in ways that really bespeak the kind of loving to which we're called, whether as a married couple uh, in a way that involves uh, physical intimacy and, again, the, the great munus, the great responsibility, the great opportunity of being a part of the transmission of life, or as Christian celibates, uh, whether <laughs> these days one speaks about voluntary or involuntary. That's uh, hopefully a kind of a joke in some ways, but, but one can speak about the uh, responsibility also to act in responsible, loving ways uh, if you're not married. And mm -hmm. when you think about it, the reality is, and this is going to sound a little odd, but the reality is every Christian is called to celibate, loving relationships with every other person in the universe, with only one exception, if you happen to be married. Right. And so that capacity for a, um, a more properly balanced understanding of what intimacy is for, what friendship, what relationships are for, is an absolutely essential thing for us to rediscover. And this tendency to separate out 
the various aspects and to try to live in one or another uh, really demeans uh, the foundational nature of loving, which, as uh, Humane Vitae reminded us, and this is a reflection of something that one finds uh, all the way back in Augustine, one finds in, in marriage a very beautiful icon of the love of the Blessed Trinity, mm-hmm. a gift of the person, a gift of the self to the other, and what is sometimes more difficult, a receiving of the gift of the other and therefore creating something more than what the individual is and and creating more than what the relationship would be without that. That certainly exists in a beautiful iconic form in marriage. It's a reflection of the love of the Blessed Trinity, but in some ways it exists in every relationship. Mm -hmm. And so to try to live that out in the way that is appropriate and possible in all of our relationships is really the key. A love that that isn't an emotional love. It's not a love of, of mere acts, but as St. Thomas Aquinas says, it's a love that wills the good of the other, that it's more than just our actions. It's the whole of our being and our intention, everything that goes behind the act as well as the act itself. And as you say, it's not dependent on what I'm happening to feel. As C.S. Lewis in his beautiful book, The Four Loves, often reminds us the, the feeling of being in love or the what he calls emotional froth that sometimes <laughs> accompanies the, the very beautiful and good experiences that we sometimes have are heavily influenced by factors. Yeah. We're talking today with Father Luke Dysinger. Uh, he teaches at St. John Seminary in Camarillo, California. He's a member of St. Andrew's Abbey, Benedictine Abbey here in California as well. There's more to this conversation right after this as we talk about how Pope Francis, in his writing, supports and defends Humana Vitae. Join the conversation over at facebook.com slash step outside the walls on Twitter. The handle's at outside the walls. We'll be right back right after this. You're listening to Outside the Walls. Welcome back to Outside the Walls, where we explore the foundations and implications of our faith on daily life. I'm your host, Timothy Putnam, and today we're talking with Father Luke Dysinger. Uh, He's a Benedictine monk and a medical doctor and currently teaches seminary uh, at St. John Seminary in Camarillo, California, uh, touching all kinds of things, human sexuality, bioethics, patristics, and the history of Christian spirituality. Father Dysinger, thank you for being with us today. It's my pleasure. Your your passion, you told me earlier, was patristics, and specifically the Desert Fathers. Um, when were you first uh, exposed to the, the Desert Fathers, and, and how did that, that uh, deepen your own spiritual life? As a novice in any religious order, you're encouraged to read deeply in the spiritual tradition to which you belong. And so the Desert Fathers were an important part of my own reading, my own formation. I came across the author Evagrius Ponticus, uh, who lived in the late fourth century, died in the year 399, and turns out to have been the most prolific writer of all the Desert Fathers. In fact, he's really the only one who wrote substantial texts that have survived. We have many stories about the Desert Fathers that usually that were compiled within decades, and in some cases, more than a century after their death. But in Evagrius' case, we actually have what he was writing at the time when he was there. And it's fascinating to me that he was a very learned theologian. He uh, was a uh, protege of St. Basil and St. Gregory Nazianzen, and then later uh, came to know uh, Rufinus and Melania, 
And finally settling in, uh, in Egypt, he managed to get his writings uh, sent to his friend Rufinus, and they were effectively, as, as it could be done in the ancient world, published, made widely known. He got into trouble a little later because of uh, speculating on matters that hadn't been completely defined by the church in his day. But nonetheless, his spiritual writings are uh, very, very important and have been transmitted in primarily uh, in uh, languages other than the one he wrote, that is in Greek. Uh, Much of it is preserved in the Syriac tradition, but the original Greek does exist for quite a few of his texts, and in the Orthodox tradition especially, he is part of the Philokalia, the book of wisdom that is used by those who practice the Jesus prayer. He wrote on prayer. He wrote on asceticism. He is really the first to identify what in the Middle Ages become the seven deadly sins, what in his day were called the eight um, deadly thoughts. And he offers suggestions, recommendations as to how one struggles with this. But the thing I became more and more intrigued by as I learned more about him is that the overwhelming majority of what he wrote was, in fact, commentary on the sacred scriptures. Mm -hmm. He wrote a very long and very beautiful commentary on the Psalms, which was lost for more than a thousand years, but rediscovered in a Vatican library in the 1960s. I discovered that uh, using some texts available on CD-ROM, one could reconstruct it, and that became the basis of my own doctoral work and research studies. Fantastic. So uh, Evagrius has played a very important role in my own life. So here at this conference, uh, at the Humana Vitae conference, uh, you gave a talk, uh, which it, you can find out all the information about these talks and, and even find the archives of them over at CelebrateHV50.com. But you gave a talk using Amoris Laetitia in defense of life and NFP. Uh, and this is just a fascinating discussion to me because a lot of people uh, would perceive an incongruity between between Pope Francis and his predecessors, between uh, St. John Paul II and, and Pope Benedict, much less blessed uh, Paul VI. Mm-hmm. Uh, you talked in the last segment about you seeing this ongoing conversation uh, and a continuity within that. Talk to me a little bit about uh, what, what you said in that talk and, and what it looks like uh, to, to have these very... Uh, traditional, strident, maybe even opinions about life in NFP and and finding strength in that from the current pontificate? I think one has to bear in mind that the perceived and often misunderstood apparent or sometimes described distinction between what one finds in earlier writings and what one finds in the texts of, um, of Pope Francis is really the difference between Uh, systematic theology or systematic and moral theology uh, very clearly explicated using the traditional doctrine of the church, the traditional language of the church on the one hand, and Pope Francis's emphasis on pastoral theology. Mm -hmm. Pastoral theology is a legitimate theological discipline, and it builds upon and draws from and seeks to implement and apply the uh, disciplines of moral theology and of systematics. In fact, when you look historically at it, both pastoral theology and what we call moral theology originally came into existence as a way of helping confessors, helping priests in the confessional to assist people who were wrestling with their own struggles with what we would today call addictions and compulsions and finding ways of enabling them to move forward, to discover the grace of God that they needed in order to move forward and and live more fully the life that God wants them to live. And 
in many ways, it's just a question of emphasis. Pope Francis is a pastor above all else. He is, has always been very concerned for the flock, for speaking a language that makes sense to them. He loves earthy metaphors. He loves uh, sort of off-the-cuff kinds of statements, which allow people to see that he really is working with and is with the people. And so what one finds in his text is an overwhelming concern for the pastoral application and pastoral implications of things. However, if you look at what undergirds this, what is actually said in a document like Amoris Laetitia with regard to specifically natural family planning, what you find is strong encouragement of these methods that make use of an awareness of the natural rhythms of fertility and that allows a person to live in, and here again you touch on other themes that Pope Francis has regarded as so important, naturalness, living in harmony with the environment, and not just the broad environment of the world around us, but the environment that is our own bodies. We have responsibility for them, we need to live in relationship with them, we need to make choices that are in harmony with our bodies, and so the great work that's been done to understand and find methods that enable women to make choices about their um, um, sexual activity uh, in the context of marriage with regard to their fertility is all to the good and is certainly affirmed specifically in the context of um, Amoris Laetitia. The other aspect that I think goes with this, uh, two very important points, are on the one hand accompaniment. It's another theme that you find strongly stressed in Pope Francis's um, homilies in his uh, official statements as well, that Christians should never be alone. Uh, we should not isolate or allow the elderly to be alone. Those who are vulnerable especially need to be cared for. And people who are having problems, people who are having difficulties, who are struggling with issues in faith, should not struggle with these things alone. That raises a very interesting patristic point, which is, and you find this in John Cash and others, that discernment is never something that is done in isolation. Mm -hmm. Discernment is always the opening of your heart to someone whom you trust so that you can discover in conversation the way that God wants you to move. Well, in the same way, Pope Francis is interested in this discernment, which he as a Jesuit has experienced as a very important theme, in companionship with others. So uh, a theme that then tends to be highlighted, and he talks about this in terms of older couples being willing to accompany, to be with younger couples, mm -hmm. uh, is a very powerful and very potent characteristic of natural family planning as well. Several of the conferences here, uh, the, the um, uh, lectures here at the conference have emphasized that the need for people who are beginning the journey of discovering natural family planning to have teachers, to have people who have walked in that way, from whom they can learn, of whom they can ask questions, who will be available to them uh, to assist them. And that is very strongly emphasized in Amoris Laetitia, the theme of accompaniment. Uh, the third theme that is absolutely essential is that of the principle of gradualness. Mm -hmm. And this again is a pastoral principle. It means that uh, people stumble. People who are attempting to move in a particular direction will make mistakes and using language that Pope Francis is very fond of, the devil will try to use that as a way of getting them to abandon the project. Oh, you'll never succeed. You're all sinful. Why are you trying to do this? Right. Uh, just give it up. Well, in fact, um, what one needs with an understanding of the principle of gradualness is the kind of encouragement that a very good coach would constantly offer to someone who's struggling to become the best athlete that they can. No, you get up and try again. It's all right. Do the best you can. Give it whatever 
whatever possibilities you've got at this moment and carry on. But don't be discouraged. You're not alone. Continue working. And so the principle of uh, the principle of accompaniment and the principle of um, both discernment and of gradualness means that you recognize that this deepens over time and that you don't get flustered, you don't threaten with hell when people fall. And this is important for us all to remember that each of us has a thing that prevents us from being perfectly holy right now. We, we all have the need of confession. We all deal with concupiscence and our temptations, and we all fall to these temptations from time to time. And, and what I see so beautifully with Pope Francis is this, this ongoing encouragement and saying, I, I, here is the truth. And he does talk about the truth in these encyclicals. He words it in such a way that he doesn't shut down the conversation with a person. Because it can be easy when we talk in moral theology uh, to to only be concerned with, with doctrine, which is important. But to only be concerned with what is truly right and what is truly wrong. And to do that in a way that's clear. But clarity can sometimes shut down the person. In Christ himself it says... A bruised reed he wouldn't break, and a smoldering wick he wouldn't snuff out. And and I think many times we uh, we miss that pastoral aspect of the fact that we're speaking to a person that that is striving for this, and we want them to continue to strive for it. Absolutely. And moral theology, pastoral theology, uh, should always be about trying to be as clear as possible on the goal towards which we're moving. Mm -hmm. And when we fall down and drift away from the goal, we need to be reminded of what the goal is. And the other thing that, that should never happen, and unfortunately this is something that sometimes I think tired pastors and tired confessors can sometimes do is to say, well, you know, you're doing the best you can, so don't worry about it. And I think at heart there is perhaps a kind of a um, what is experienced as a charitable goal to avoid the person being uh, burdened with a sort of a sense of tremendous guilt because they've mm -hmm. fallen or because they're finding it difficult to move forward. And it certainly is important uh, through the sacrament of penance and reconciliation for a person to move out of that situation of guilt and move towards the possibility of, of deepening in grace. But you don't want to say to someone, well, you're doing the best you can. You know, don't bother bringing this up in mm -hmm. confession. This really isn't an issue for you. What you're doing at that moment is saying, no, you don't need to worry about a goal. The goal right. you've achieved is as much as you can do and you know people like you aren't going to make any more progress so just stay where you are that's abandonment well that's not only not that accompaniment. not only that but it's also saying that the holy spirit has no ability to act in your life because you've been dealing with this you know i, I recall when i was working with couples helping prepare them for marriage many were coming uh, and they had been cohabiting and of mm -hmm. course there's no canonical impediment there we want them to regularize their situation and so i would always say I'm so glad you're here. We're so thrilled that you're getting married um, and, and celebrate with them in that moment rather than looking at them and going, oh, you, you cohabit? In the same way that when I go to the confessional, Father says to me, I'm so glad that you're here. Uh, the, the grace of God is here to meet with you, not, oh my gosh, can you believe what he just did, right? Well, the, the foundational problem is that we have what, you know, to use the language of modern computer science, we have a flawed operating system. Mm -hmm. uh, at base, and the church would call this the effect of original sin, there is always a voice inside us that is going to condemn us. Mm -hmm. And as a physician, as anybody working in the, the um, mental health sciences knows, there will always be voices uh, which say the wrong thing. Yeah. And yet, Christ calls us 
uh, to, him, to himself to give us mercy and to redeem us. We're talking with Father Luke Dysinger. He's a medical doctor and a Benedictine monk at St. Andrew's Abbey in California. So glad to have you on the show today, Father. Good to be here. Join the ongoing conversation over at facebook.com slash step outside the walls. On Twitter, the handle's at outside the walls. There's more to come in today's show. Don't go anywhere. You're listening to Outside the Walls with Timothy Putnam. Welcome back to Outside the Walls, where we explore the foundations and implications of our faith on daily life. We've been airing a conversation today from the Humana Vitae Conference back in Ontario, California, at the end of last month uh, with Father Luke Dysinger. You can find out more information about that conference and soon have access to all the talks that were given there over at CelebrateHV50.com. If you've been with us since the beginning of the show, you know that we're going to take some time today to talk about this grand jury report out of uh, out of Pennsylvania. Uh, I've read some of it. I, I have not been able to read all of it. One, because of the sheer size of it, and two, because of the things that are contained within it. It's very difficult reading. And each of these stories represents a person that we have to pray for, these victims that have had their lives upended. And as I read it, I have to tell you, there is some really disturbing, horrifying things in it, and none of them surprise me. None of them surprise me because I know how dark the human heart can be. And it doesn't surprise me that priests are capable just as much of this evil as the rest of us. What has surprised me and what has been very hard to, um, to process is the silence of the bishops, the, the propensity and the preference of keeping things quiet rather than, uh, than bringing healing. I had an experience just the other night with my, um, with my five-year-old daughter and she had, uh, a, a splinter, some, some something stuck uh, in her body. And she was unhappy with any attempt to get anywhere near it to get it out. And it, her mom tried earlier in the day to, uh, to work with it and to no avail. Uh, as soon as she would get anywhere close, uh, she would just uh, scream. And so, uh, so she left it. But well, by the time that I got home in the evening, it was uh, pretty well uh, infected and looking pretty bad. And so we, um, we talked with her about it. We got her to a place and tried to calm her down and went to, uh, to excise that, that splinter. And she was not happy. I mean, she screamed bloody murder. I, I, I hope no one was walking by the house at that moment. But we were able uh, to get it out and to put peroxide on it and to put the, the salve on it. And, um, and it was loud and it was uncomfortable and it made a big noise, but it brought healing. And that's uh, what was not done. Uh, this is a little bit about what Father Dysinger talked about in the last segment of coming into the confessional and having the priest say, oh, well, you know, you tried hard enough. We're not going to make this 
too painful for you, just go ahead and keep doing what you're doing. And when that happens, whether it be in the confessional or whether it be uh, in a chancery office or a dicastery or any other official arm of the church, when the sin is not brought to the light, it festers and it brings death. And that's what we are experiencing right now. And so my heart is broken over the fact that this was not brought to light immediately so it could be healed, that, that it wasn't brought to light immediately to stop the damage for the victims and to bring uh, restitution and justice, but that also that it was hidden for years and years and years with full knowledge. And so as I uh, was praying about how are we going to talk about this, what is this going to uh, look like even just on the show, um, as I was just trying to process it, the uh, the words of Scripture from Mass uh, just rushed back into my head. This is from a few weeks ago, uh, the the 16th week of Ordinary Time. And this, uh, this reading from Church History comes out of the book of Jeremiah. Woe to the shepherds who mislead and scatter the flock of my pasture, says the Lord. Therefore, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, against the shepherds who shepherd my people, you have scattered my sheep and driven them away. You have not cared for them, but I will take care to punish your evil deeds. I myself will gather the remnant of my flock from all the lands to which I have driven them and bring them back to their meadow. There they shall increase and multiply. I will appoint shepherds for them who shepherd them so that they need no longer fear and tremble, and none shall be missing, says the Lord. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will raise up a righteous shoot to David. As king he shall reign and govern wisely. He shall do what is just and right in the land. In his days Judah shall be saved. Israel shall dwell in security. This is the name they give him, the Lord, our justice. That reading comes from the book of Jeremiah. At the end of our first segment, I talked to you about the the prayers and intentions that we had for our prayers to the faithful, and I gave you two of them. And I want to give you another. Uh, These come, I'm stealing them from Deacon Stephen Gradonis out of uh, New Jersey. And we pray that God would bless his church with vigilant and worthy pastors and through their vigilance, deliver his people from unworthy and wicked ones. We pray to the Lord. Lord, hear our prayer. Today's reading from church history comes from St. Augustine of Hippo. He has this long passage. Uh, it takes several days in the breviary uh, that he's talking about the shepherds that God gives us and the woe to this wicked shepherd. And this one, this this little installment stood out to me particularly today as I was contemplating uh, what to say. Well then, shepherds, hear the word of the Lord. What must you shepherds hear? Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am above the shepherds, and I will call them to account for the sheep and their hands. Listen, sheep of God, listen and learn. God will call the bad shepherds to account for his sheep. And for their deaths. As he says elsewhere in Ezekiel, Son of man, I have appointed you as sentry to the house of Israel. When you hear a word from my mouth, warn them in my name. 
If I say to a wicked man, wicked wretch, you are to die, and you do not speak the warn the wicked man to renounce his ways, then he shall die for his sin, but I will hold you responsible for his death. If, however, you do warn a wicked man to renounce his ways and repent, and he does not repent, then he shall die for his sin, but you yourself will have saved your life. You see, brethren, do you see how dangerous it is to keep quiet? If you remain silent, you die, and rightly. You die for your impiety and sin. It is your negligence that kills you. He who is said, as I live, says the Lord, might have found a living shepherd. But since the shepherd was negligent, not warning those he had been given authority over, those whose sentry he was, he will die justly, and the sentry will be justly condemned. But if, the Lord continues, you say, you are to die with one I have threatened with the sword, and he does not avoid the sword, and it comes and kills him, he will die in his sin, but you will have set your soul free. That is why we must not keep silent. And you, even if we did keep silent, must listen to the words of the true shepherd in Holy Scripture. Since I raised the question, let us see if he takes the sheep from the dead shepherds and gives them to good ones. I certainly see him taking the sheep from the bad shepherds. I am above the shepherds, and I take my flock back from them, and I shall not allow them to feed my flock. In this way, the shepherds will stop feeding themselves, for when I say to them, Feed my sheep, they feed themselves and not my sheep. And I shall not allow them to feed my sheep. How does he stop them from looking after his sheep? Do whatever they say, but do not do what they do. It is as if he were saying, Their words are my words, but their actions are their own. When you avoid what the bad shepherds do, they are not in charge of you anymore. When you follow what they say, it is my words you are following, and it is I who am tending you. That reading comes from uh, St. Augustine of Hippo on a long treatise that he gives to pastors and to shepherds. Here we see covered both what Father Dysinger was talking about and, and this whole issue with the, um, with the grand jury report. The, the shepherd who meets us in the confessional has the obligation to tell us our sin so that we can repent and not leave us there because then not only are we separated from God, but then he's culpable for that as well. But likewise, those bishops who knew and saw abuse happening under their watch and said nothing or, uh, gave a slap on the wrist or covered up uh, these horrific crimes and cared for the, the good of the diocese or of the, the priest and ignored the good of the victim. For them too, those who remain silent will be judged. It would be easy for you or I to, uh, to just get overwhelmed by all of this or to get angry at all of this uh, and I want to encourage you to take this a different direction and take it to prayer, specifically prayer for the victims uh, and prayer and reparation. The Daughters of St. Paul have, uh, I found that on Twitter, they've got a lovely uh, one-hour adoration, a holy hour praying for reparation and praying for 
uh, the victims. Please, uh, we're going to put a link to that in our social media. Make a holy hour this week. Pray in reparation for the harm done. Pray for the victim. Pray for transparency and for justice. Pray that Pope Francis and all bishops and all leaders of Catholic institutions will cooperate fully with Christ in sanctifying his church on earth and making her holy and without blemish. Until next week, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace.